Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles. Each of these episodes features just one story from our earlier years. If you're new to Risk, you should know that the podcast can be very uncensored. This week, a story by J.P. Michael who first shared this one on the podcast in July of 2016. Here's JP now with a story we call A Hard Landing. This is a story about meeting somebody who completely changed my life. The story begins in January of 2013. I was 24 and had just moved to New York City for work. I barely knew anybody in the city, and it quickly turned out that my new job was a bit of a bust. When I moved over, I thought that I was going to be leading the charge for my company into the North American markets. But then when I arrived, things were very different. The guy I was there to work for was actually being forced out of the company, and the work I was supposed to be doing wasn't going to be happening. So I had no boss no co-workers. I actually ended up working from my apartment every day, reporting back to London and mainly staring at spreadsheets. So it wasn't quite as exciting as I was hoping it would be and didn't have very many connections in the city as a result. So then when I met this girl, Claire, through online dating, it was absolutely fantastic. She was tall, blonde, a few years younger than me, but super smart. She was studying to be a lawyer and had been interning at the UN. One of the first things I noticed about her was that she had this kind of look in her eye, like she could see right through that protective layer of BS that people tend to build up around themselves. So for better or for worse, you had no choice but to show yourself as you really were. One of the things that really made me start to appreciate her as a person was um, I was you know, feeling a little bit down about the fact that things hadn't worked out the way I wanted to at work. But she was sort of a cheerleader for me. She was really driving me to look for alternative jobs. She was tapping her network to try and find people that had jobs that might have visas with them. And so she was really, really trying to help me out on that front. We would have these sort of long and kind of deeply analytical intellectual conversations with each other. So I'd never met anybody like Claire before, but when you would talk to her, you could see how intently she was listening to the things that you were saying. And she was really pulling them apart and analysing them and... She would be very, very challenging in terms of the ideas that you were sharing and it meant that you could have these conversations that would take you to these sort of weird and wonderful places that you wouldn't normally have gotten to just by yourself. So we had this very deep and stimulating intellectual connection that I thought was really quite special. Claire and I very quickly connected and looking back I think there are two key reasons for this. The first is that she seemed to have this genuine drive that I should try to change as a person. 
And I think that often that's something that can have a selfish motive behind it, that the person wants to change you into the person that they want you to be. But in Claire's case, it seemed like she genuinely wanted me to better myself so that I could get the things that I wanted to out of life. I think she saw in me a lot of potential that was untapped because I just lacked self-belief. She would say, look, you're so smart, but you just don't even realize it. She was worried that I would set my sights too low in life, and so she was always pushing me to dream bigger and reach for the stars, I guess. So Claire was a really amazing and very important source of support for me when I was so far away from home. The second area where I felt this immediate bond was our shared sense of humour. So I'm very much a fan of that kind of comedy where you're laughing so hard that it actually hurts. And the pain that you're feeling isn't just physical, you're feeling a piece of it inside you, almost in your soul, because you're ashamed of the thing that you're laughing at. It's that kind of humour that almost feels like a guilty pleasure. So Claire and I would spend a lot of time trading absolutely disgusting jokes and horrifying insults back and forth, and we would just be dying with laughter. Now given that work was looking like a dead end, I wasn't sure how long I'd be in the city for, so I wasn't necessarily on the lookout for a serious relationship. But all the same, I was really, really pleased to have found this connection. For the next few months, Claire and I spent a lot of time together, hanging out mainly in front of the TV. It didn't take very long at all for me to discover that having no idea how basketball works is no obstacle to a game becoming an absolute matter of life and death, where you find yourself screaming at the TV. I also soon discovered that if we were lucky enough to be in front of a TV on a Saturday afternoon, then we might catch a solid three or four hours of a show called My Cat From Hell, hosted by a man who claimed to be called Jackson Galaxy. But what was important wasn't the unbelievably high caliber of the on-screen entertainment. It was actually the conversation that was going on at the same time, which felt very open and direct and authentic, which was really in stark contrast to some of the relationships that I'd experienced up until that point in my life. But then Claire started to get sick. It started with stomach problems. She was having trouble keeping her food down. And this obviously was not at all pleasant for Claire, but it also happened to be an experience that I got to be part of, as she lived in a tiny studio apartment with paper-thin bathroom walls. And in fact, Claire showed up the next day with a book, and she explained to me that this was an I'm sorry that you had to listen to me puking all night apology gift. And I was a little bit taken back by this because it was a really sweet gesture, but it seemed really unnecessary. And then she explained to me that as she had a Jewish mother, her sense of guilt was extremely well-developed. So I stopped asking questions and, of course, accepted the gift. Early on, it didn't seem like there was a particular cause for alarm. We figured it was probably just a stomach bug that would work itself out in a day or two. Unfortunately, we were extremely wrong about this. It wasn't long before the excruciating abdominal pain started and then the visits to the emergency room. What followed was weeks and weeks of the doctors trying various diagnostic procedures. Claire became intimately acquainted with a wide variety of photographic equipment, and I can tell you from personal experience that that's really not pleasant at all. So she had the whole camera crew going up there, she was being poked and prodded like a lab rat, and they just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. It actually got to the point where there would be groups of doctors and medical students coming into Gorgata 
because she was the latest puzzle that nobody could solve. It really started to feel like it was some kind of game to them. They would throw out these theories, you know, potential diagnoses, and we would get our hopes up that finally they might have figured this thing out. And then of course, once they checked into it, they would realize that actually they were way off. So we were riding this roller coaster where again and again, we would see light at the end of the tunnel and then our hopes would just be crushed. Eventually it got to the point where the doctor said, look, the best idea we can come up with is to prescribe this really powerful antibiotic to you. I think it was called Zyfaxin. And they said, this will clean out all of the bacteria in your system. And so if there's anything bad in there, we'll get it and we'll reset everything. So it really seemed like they had no idea if it was really going to work, but we didn't really have a lot of options. And so Claire started to take the medicine. And at first, absolutely nothing happened. But then, slowly but surely, the pain began to subside. And then Claire was vomiting a little bit less. It seemed like finally, something was working. And Claire might actually be okay. The Diagnostic Magical Mystery Tour had finally reached its end. A few days later, Claire tells me that the doctors had been running some follow-up tests and they'd seen something else, something new. And that thing was evidence of cancer. Claire's immediate reaction to discovering this was that the best course of action would be to run home and devour the entire contents of her medicine cabinet. Fortunately, I was able to talk her down as far as going out and getting absolutely outrageously drunk. Once we'd recovered from the hangover from hell, Unfortunately, the bad news just kept coming. The doctors still didn't know what was wrong exactly. What they did know was that if the symptoms continued to progress at the same rate and they couldn't diagnose and treat Claire, then it was very unlikely that she would live to see her 22nd birthday. So Claire and I had many long emotional conversations about what the best thing to do was in light of the possibility that maybe she didn't have that much time left. I remember during those conversations her saying, look, I don't want to become one of these people who goes on YouTube and video logs about it. I don't want to write a blog about this. I just wish this wasn't happening and I just want to get on with my life for as long as I can. And after that, it wasn't that much longer before the neurological symptoms started. She began to have seizures where her whole body would stiffen and she would shake and the eyes would roll back in her head. She began to have irrational behavior and she would get aggressive and then ultimately it progressed to the stage where she was having suicidal ideation as well. Claire told me on several occasions that she'd actually flushed her medication down the toilet because she was worried about what she might do if it was in the apartment. There were lots of times where I had to take Claire down to the emergency room. One that really sticks in my mind was the time that I was at her place and she started feeling absolutely awful and so we decided we were going to take her down to the ER. As we got out onto 46th Street, which is a pretty crowded street in Midtown Manhattan, she began to projectile vomit all over the place. It was like a fountain, and we had these horrified onlookers looking at this poor girl who was white as a sheet, spraying puke everywhere like something out of The Exorcist. And we had people who were sort of dodging it whilst trying to come over and help us and say, oh my God, do you need a ambulance and we said no but if you can get us into a cab that would be amazing. Claire and I spent a lot of time in the hospital together. 
she was always deeply frustrated with the fact that they still hadn't yet managed to figure out what was wrong with her. And so she would often be wanting to leave and I'd be doing my best to persuade her that she needed to stay so that we could really get to the bottom of things. One of the things that really amazed me about Claire's situation was the lack of support that she seemed to have from her friends and family. Claire's father was actually in his 80s and was recovering from open heart surgery, and so her parents seemed to be rather preoccupied with that and just weren't around. Early on, I remember one of her friends showing up whilst I was in the ward, and she just looked like she really didn't want to be there, like it was a massive inconvenience for her. So I really took it upon myself to step in there and try my best to give Claire the support that she so desperately needed. It was the least that I could do given how helpful that she tried to be to me, and I still valued her friendship and companionship even if the circumstances weren't ideal. The whole time that I was doing my best to look after her, she was still doing her best to try and look after me too, and I really appreciated that. Claire just wasn't the type of person that was going to let cancer stand in her way when she felt that there was a job that desperately needed to be done. Throughout all of this, I was trying so hard to maintain a British stiff upper lip in the hope that Claire wouldn't pick up on the fact that I was actually absolutely terrified. This became practically impossible by the time we were dealing with surgeries, code blues, and then stays in the ICU. The last thing that Claire needed in the situation was for me to go to pieces. I also didn't want her realising that the person she used to be was rapidly disappearing. But the truth was that I was being crushed, both by the fear of losing somebody so horribly, but also by the pressure of being a primary carer in a society that I wasn't even close to understanding. Having grown up under the socialistic tyranny of universal healthcare in Europe, where they deny you the basic freedom to pay extortionate amounts of money for basic healthcare. The US system just isn't making any sense to me. I'm trying really hard to help Claire navigate her treatments, but I always have in the back of my head this thought that I'm fucking everything up, and that ultimately, I'm going to fail to avert what was feeling increasingly inevitable in the situation. Back at the very start, I said that this was a story about somebody who completely changed my life. Well, actually, it's a story about two people, and it's time for us to meet the second. Emma was Claire's best friend. They'd gone to school together back in Boston. The first time I met Emma was in the ward of NYU Hospital. She'd come down to visit Claire for the weekend. But that Saturday, as we often did, we'd ended up at the ER, so she came to meet us down at the hospital. Emma was a very short, curvy, dark-haired girl. It was very charming and bubbly. And I remember that when she arrived, she practically bounded into the room. She had with her this assortment of food and drink and other supplies that she brought along for Claire. And I remember thinking to myself, thank God, finally the cavalry's here. But it's important to be aware of the fact that there was another side to Emma. She'd had a difficult past. As a teenager, she'd had issues with her mental health and then drug addiction. And that eventually led to her being kicked out by her family. She then turned to the prostitution business to support herself and finance her college degree. But more recently, she had moved on from that and was doing much better on all fronts. But the key thing is that During that very dark period in Emma's life where 
even her own family wasn't there for her. Claire had been there, and she'd been a rock that she could rely on. And the thing about Claire's illness was that it meant that she couldn't continue to play that role in Emma's life. She couldn't offer that same level of support that she'd become very much dependent on. And Emma did not handle this at all well. In fact, she completely and utterly lost it. Claire showed me some of the messages that Emma was sending and it was clear that she was feeling a very intense sense of betrayal and abandonment. She was also saying unpleasant things like she was ashamed of Claire and the way she was behaving and what a poor friend she was. This back and forth was continuing for a period of weeks, I think. And Claire was telling me that, yeah, it was getting worse. Things were getting more aggressive and out of control over time. Eventually, Emma's aggression progressed beyond just words. On another Saturday afternoon spent in the ER, I'm standing next to Claire's bed. And I notice that there's something funny about her wrist. And I reach out and I grab her arm so that I can pull it closer and get a better look. And she's trying to squirm away so that I can't see. But I do. And what is there is a series of red lines carved into the flesh of her wrist. And I asked her, what happened? Where did this come from? And she told me. And she said she'd been at her apartment and Emma had shown up. And she had her own key to the place. She could let herself in. And when she arrived, she was in a total rage. Maybe she was on drugs or something like that. But she got in there and she just unloaded this horrific tirade of abuse on her. She was dredging up any painful personal stuff that she could from from the past that she confided in Emma about. And turning anything she could into a weapon to basically hurt Claire as much as she could. Eventually it got to the point where she was just standing over Claire who was in tears and telling her that she was a completely worthless human being, a terrible friend, and she just had no value as a person. And then she said, you know what, you should just, you should just kill yourself, you should do the world a favour. And at this point, she reached over to the kitchen counter and pulled a knife from the block. And then she slashed Claire's wrist, handed her the blade and told her to finish the job. And then Emma left. Claire was sat alone on the floor of her apartment in cascades of, of tears, slashing her own wrist. Eventually, she stopped and she got to her hospital and fortunately, the cuts weren't too bad. As she was telling me that, I could just feel the eyes bulging in my head and probably my jaw dropping as well. I was just really struggling to find some words that might offer a degree of comfort to Claire. And I remember saying that whilst Emma was Claire's friend, she should really not listen to the things that she'd been saying. She was clearly profoundly troubled. And I told her that she should do her best not to let this distract her from getting better. Claire told me that she'd already demanded that the key was returned. And I told her that that wasn't going to be enough. She needed to get the locks changed. Even if she got the key back, how was she going to know that Emma hadn't made a copy? A few days later, I'm sat working in my apartment, and the phone rings. It's Claire. She says, look, I don't want to freak you out, but I just got back from the police station. So, of course, I immediately freak out internally. But then I ask her, okay, what's going on? 
She tells me that she got the key back, but it was in an envelope full of razor blades. She says that Emma's completely lost it and she's got no idea what she might do next. The police were going to speak to her that afternoon. And I asked her, did you get your locks changed yet? She says no, she hasn't. And so I tell her to leave the apartment and come and stay with me until she does. Later that evening, Claire and I are hanging out at my place and her phone rings. When she picks up, she very quickly goes as white as a sheet. It's the staff at her building and they're reporting that there's been a break-in at her place. A neighbour had heard a lot of noise coming from her apartment and had phoned down to the front desk. When the door staff had gone upstairs to investigate, they had discovered that the entire place had been ransacked. We had absolutely no idea where Emma or any of her friends might be, so we decided the safest thing to do would be to wait until morning to go and inspect the damage. Now I'm an inherently cautious kind of guy, and I thought it was important that we could defend ourselves on the off chance that somebody came looking for Claire at my place. So I conducted an extremely thorough search of the entire apartment, and quickly arrived at the conclusion that the most deadly item in my possession was a frying pan, and so we slept with that next to the bed that night. In the morning, I offered to call out of work so that I could accompany Claire to the apartment, but she didn't want me to miss any more work on her account, and she said it would be fine as the cops and the building staff would be there with her, so she went there alone. When she arrived, she was greeted by a scene of total devastation. Just about everything in the apartment that could be knifed or smashed had been, and there was garbage strewn everywhere. This included, among other things, used tampons, dead rodents, and the pièce de résistance, human feces. She sent me a few choice pictures, and it really wasn't a pretty scene at all. And so Claire spent a lot of time there over the next few days, cleaning the place up with the help of her building staff. Eventually, it would get to the point where the only evidence remaining that there was ever a break-in were the really deep scratches that had been carved into the floorboards of the apartment. But Emma was still out there, and her campaign of harassment was continuing, with increasingly threatening messages now being sent to Claire from a burner phone. And on more than one occasion, Claire told me that she suspected that people had been in the apartment again. At this stage, I really had no idea what to think anymore, and things were really beginning to take their toll. Between dealing with work and looking after Claire, I was probably getting less than four hours sleep most nights, and I was always on edge that the phone was about to ring and bring even more bad news. The stress was beginning to affect me physically, my hair was going grey and it was thinning at the temples. I just couldn't fathom the extent to which the universe seemed to be willing to shit on one person. Contracting a rare illness at a young age is very unlucky, but it does happen, and having a friend with a shady past flip out and come after you is also extremely unlucky, but again, it happens to some people. But having both of those things happen to you at the same time, it's like being struck by lightning and eaten by a shark at the same time. Did stuff like that really happen to people? Well, what if the two horrendously unlucky things that Claire was going through weren't a coincidence? What if they were actually linked to each other? Just as I was thinking that the situation couldn't possibly spin any further out of control, I received what was probably the most shocking phone call of my entire life. It was Claire. She'd been at the apartment with the cops, who'd come over to do some follow-up on the break-in. One of the cops had noticed something. There were three bottles of soda out on the kitchen counter, and the seals were missing on all of the bottles, even though they were full. They began to check around, and sure enough, the seals were missing on just about every container in the apartment. The police took some of the containers away for testing, and... Just about everything in Claire's apartment was contaminated with heavy metals. 
When I heard this, I jumped onto Google and I searched for heavy metal poisoning. Lo and behold, Claire's symptoms appeared on the screen in front of me. The second thing I searched for was heavy metal poisoning and cancer, and hits came up on the screen. Suddenly, it started to make sick, twisted sense. While it had never really added up for Emma to go after Claire so aggressively after she contracted such a serious illness, if you reversed the order of those two events, then a completely different picture began to emerge. What if Emma had actually relapsed and turned on Claire much earlier than anybody had realised? What if she was the reason that Claire was sick? What if she'd actually been poisoning her? And then I thought back to that time at the hospital, when Emma showed up with that ridiculous amount of food and drink with her. Finally, we had the right diagnosis. We got the contaminated items out of Claire's apartment and she could begin treatments. But unfortunately, a lot of the damage that heavy metals can cause to the human body isn't actually reversible. Also, while the police could bring in Emma for questioning, they didn't have enough evidence to actually charge her. This was ultimately too much for Claire to take. One afternoon, my phone buzzed and it was a text message from Claire and it said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. And I immediately tried to call her. And eventually I got through. The first thing I heard was the sound of the wind blowing, followed by absolutely inconsolable sobbing. She's not making an awful lot of sense and she keeps saying the same things over and over again. I can't keep doing this. It's over. She killed me. She fucking killed me. I managed to calm her down enough to ask a question. Where are you? Eventually I get a response. She's on the edge of the Queensborough Bridge. This was a conversation that I was not at all prepared to handle. I'd never had to do anything approaching talking somebody down from the edge before. Unfortunately, I haven't had to since. But I knew that if I didn't figure this out fast, then something awful was about to happen. So I just kept her talking. I kept asking if we can meet up and talk about it. And while I have my phone in my left hand, I'm using my right hand to email Claire's mother to ask her to call her immediately. And then I email my friend Dan and ask him to call 911 and let them know that there's somebody threatening to jump off the Queensborough Bridge. After what was probably the longest couple of minutes of my life, Claire stops mid-sentence and tells me that I'm going to have to hold on. Somebody's calling her. It's her mother. After probably less than a minute, she comes back on the line and she is furious. You called my mom? You don't fucking talk to her. I tell her that I'm sorry, but I just didn't know what else to do. I again plead for her to get off the bridge and come and talk about it, and warn her that if she doesn't, then we're going to have to call the police. She really doesn't want the cops involved, so she finally agrees that she's going to come down. So I drop everything with work and rush to Claire's apartment to meet her. When I get there, she looks me dead in the eye and says, I wish I'd done it. This story ends after one more day and one last phone call. It was Claire and she's in a complete panic. She says, I took some pills from an old bottle and I've started feeling really awful and it's getting worse. I'm really worried that maybe Emma slipped something in there. We hightail it to Lennox Hill ER and this time we have my friend Dan along for the ride and also Claire's friend Ruth who had just a few days earlier moved back to New York. She seemed to be absolutely devastated by what was happening to Claire. When we arrive at Lennox Hill Emergency Room, I tell the staff on the front desk that we think that Claire may have ingested poison, and I quickly run through the whole story with Emma. 
The poor lady on the front desk totally freaks out and goes into overdrive to get Claire admitted. But while that's going on, the other nurse says to me, out of earshot of everybody else, I'm really sorry, but I have to ask you this. Is there any mental health history? And I'm a little bit taken back by this, but I reply that no, there isn't as far as I'm aware. Once we get inside the ER, what seems to be the most senior doctor on duty comes to talk to us. We go through the whole story about the poisoning, the harassment, and the treatment that Claire has been receiving. She asks us for the names of the doctors and detectives who've been involved so that she can speak to them and get a better idea of what we're dealing with. Claire provides us information and then the doctor goes off to make phone calls. We're then asked to step out while the nurses get to work. After maybe about 10 minutes, that same doctor comes back and she silently motions for the three of us to move away from the curtained area. Once we're out of earshot, she tells us that she went and made the phone calls and the people on the other end of the phone didn't know what she was talking about. None of the individuals that Claire had named actually existed. And then she asks us if anybody has actually seen any cops. And I explained that there were break-ins and I saw the damage. But then she says, yeah, but did you actually talk to a cop after that? Before I can reply, we're interrupted. Claire shouts from behind us, I didn't authorize any of this. You shouldn't be talking about this. It's an active investigation and all of this is confidential. Look, I, I want to leave. I'm, I'm going to refuse treatment. She's up out of her bed and she's now standing in the middle of the ward in her gown. The doctor replies, I'm sorry, but you can't leave. You need to get back into bed. Claire challenges her. You don't have any legal basis to keep me here. I'm going to leave. As the words come out of her mouth, I'm suddenly aware that there's movement in my peripheral vision. Nurses and security are now silently sweeping in to surround Claire. Then the doctor says, If we think there's something wrong with you that might endanger you or others, then we can't let you leave. You need to get back into bed because if you try to leave, we're going to have to inject you with something that's going to make you feel all woozy and then handcuff you. But that will make it much harder for us to figure this all out. Eventually, the staff offer to move Claire to a private room to make her feel more comfortable. And after a while, she agrees. When we get into this room, we have company. There's a lady sat in the corner with a clipboard on her lap and she's writing things down on it every once in a while. And from where I'm standing next to Claire's bed, I can read upside down that at the top of this clipboard is written, Suspected Paranoid Delusions. I really don't know what to think at this stage, but I do know that I have to try and give Claire a shot at avoiding the psych ward. So I ask if I can have a moment alone with Claire, and the hospital employee goes and stands outside the door guarding it, on the off chance that I was planning an impromptu jailbreak. I tell Claire that she needs to give the doctors some more information, a better explanation of what's been going on, because currently the story isn't checking out and they think that she's mentally ill. But she's quite firm that there's nothing more to share, and she says that the phone calls probably didn't check out because everything relating to the case against Emma is extremely confidential. After my conversation with Claire, I'm spending a lot of time walking backwards and forwards to the water cooler, because it provides a few minutes in which I can talk to the others to try and figure out what the hell is going on. When we get back from probably the third trip in 20 minutes, there is a hospital administrator stood in Claire's room, and she asks us, Are any of you related to the patient? We tell her no, we're just her friends. And she says, In that case, I'm going to have to ask you all to leave. And we get kicked out into the waiting room. We're not really sure what to do at this point. Dan goes outside to make some calls because there's no cell phone signal inside. And I was just left with Ruth, who I I didn't really know, but I was just talking to her about everything that was going on. I remember I was saying, this has been such a crazy week, I can't even begin to make sense of what's happening. 
It was only a few days ago that Claire was calling me and saying that she was stuck in ICU and there were no family members who could get to her and she was terrified that she wasn't going to get out again. As I was saying this, Ruth started to look confused. And then she said to me, wait, which night was that? And I thought for a second and said, I think that was on Thursday nights. The second that these words left my lips, I'd never seen all of the blood drained from somebody's face so quickly. She just said, but I was at her apartment on Thursday. We were in front of the TV smoking pot and eating pizza. And in that moment, this single little thread was cut loose. And I knew that if I started to pull on this, then an entire web was about to unravel. I remember I just leapt out of my seat without saying anything to Ruth and ran straight out to the sidewalk because I needed to get cell phone signal and I needed to phone Claire's mum. I was hyperventilating and shaking and I remember that I was struggling to dial the number because my fingers were shaking so much. So when I got through, I immediately began bombarding this poor woman with questions, but I really, really needed answers. I started checking facts one by one and with very few exceptions, they don't check out at all. Claire's mother knew about the break-in, but had only learnt about it a few days before. She'd actually texted me earlier that week to check in because she hadn't heard from Claire in a while. And in my response, I alluded to some of the things that had been going on. It was only after this that Claire had actually mentioned anything to her. The doctors had been in contact with Claire's mother that day, so she was very aware that there was something really strange going on. But crucially, she had absolutely no knowledge of the cancer diagnosis, the poisoning, or any of the treatment and surgeries. And this was unbelievably confusing, because I'd received text messages sent from her phone that mentioned many of those things. There were still so many unanswered questions, but the conversation did confirm two things. Claire wasn't imagining this. She was faking. And I was the intended audience of her hoax. Once I was done, I was walking back inside to go and talk to the doctor, and I received a text message from Claire. It said, don't worry, the police are here now, and it's all getting sorted out. You're going to be let back in soon. I get there to talk to the doctor and say, I just received this message, and I'm pretty sure that it's not true. And she told me, no, it wasn't. There were no police. Then I said, well, look, For what it's worth, I don't think she's delusional. I think this is all a massive hoax that she's been using to manipulate me. And the doctor thanked me for sharing the information but said it was now out of her hands. Claire was going to be held for the next three days and evaluated by the psychiatric team. So I walked back outside and Ruth and Dan asked me, what are we going to do now? And it didn't take us very long to realise that there was only one sensible option at a time like this. Go to a bar and try very hard to drink the place dry. As we're in the cab going down Lexington Avenue, my phone rings. It's Claire. She's telling me the same story that was in the text message. I cut across her and say, look, we've already left the hospital. We know exactly what's going on. And if you want to get out, you're going to have to start telling the truth. And then I hung up and switched off the phone. Over the next few days, I spent a lot of time, including many of the hours when I should have been sleeping, picking apart the last three months. What I was able to figure out made my blood run cold. Claire had most likely been deliberately overdosing on her anxiety medication in order to poison herself and fake symptoms. 
More disturbing than that, she'd been cutting herself in order to fake surgical scars. Early on, I would often ask why her parents weren't more involved. Then she came back from a visit home sporting a huge black eye, which in retrospect I guess was probably just makeup. But in any case, it was more than sufficient to stop me from asking that question anymore. On the occasions that her mother was in the city visiting, she would steal her mother's phone and use it to send fake health updates to me, claiming that treatment or surgery was underway. And as for the appointments that I collected her from, she was probably just going down to the hospital and sitting in their lobby waiting for me. Along the way, she'd acted out dozens of phone conversations with cops and doctors, with nobody at the other end of the line. And what about Emma's campaign of harassment? Well, that was relatively simple to fake. Claire simply entered her own phone number into her phone book and labelled it as being Emma. She could then send threats to herself and just delete the outbound messages to be left with an unbroken stream of harassment that looked like it was coming from Emma. And as for the break-in... Claire faked the phone call from the doorman, went home, trashed the place just enough for a decent photo shoot, and then sent me the pictures. A question that really needs to be answered is, what was the deal with Emma? Well, firstly, all of that stuff about her difficult past, that is, as far as I'm aware, actually true. So when we were really worried about how far things might escalate and what might possibly happen to Claire... We actually went looking around online and we managed to find an old online advert from when she was a call girl, for example. I did think about contacting Emma and trying to understand what had happened, but I was worried that maybe that might be opening a can of worms and inviting more drama that I really just didn't want to deal with. As for all the other stuff, well, I don't know for sure, but my best guess is that the two of them did fall out with each other. But I think the real reason for that was that Emma knew about Claire's hoax and she didn't agree with it at all. Claire then used the relapse as a cover story that also conveniently discredited Emma in case she tried to intervene. She then developed this story as a secondary means of keeping me under pressure and under control. She was just smart enough to scour WebMD until she found a diagnosis that connected the two parallel threads of her lie and shored the whole story up. Probably the most important question of all is, why did Claire even do any of this? Well, back at the beginning of the story, I mentioned that I wasn't really looking for a serious relationship because I didn't know if I'd be in the country for long. And I was transparent about this with Claire. Her response was to tell me that this was okay and she understood that I wasn't really in a position to commit to something. And then she spent the next three months pretending to be dying. While Claire was in the psych ward, she called me several times. She was desperately trying to find a way to salvage her hoax and to lie her way out of the corner that she was now backed into. I debunked everything that she was telling me, but she would not come clean. She just would not stop lying. Eventually, I decided that enough was enough. I wasn't taking any more of this, and I blocked the numbers that she was calling from. I then focused my attention on Claire's parents. I tried to explain everything that had gone on in as much detail as possible, in the hope that they would pass this information on to the doctors who might find it diagnostically useful. I later learned from Ruth that they had in fact taken Claire out of hospital as quickly as they could. They were worried that Claire's friends would ostracise her, so they were downplaying the whole incident, and also actively trying to discredit me. When I heard this, it was the last straw. I cut all contact and I never saw Claire or any of her family again. To this day, I have no idea if she got the help that she needed, or if anybody else has fallen victim to what I was put through.
In the aftermath, I was initially just glad that things didn't go any further. Fortunately, I never came home to find a bunny boiling on the stove, which I was particularly thankful for given that I didn't own a pet rabbit. I thought I had my life back, but then I quickly realized that I had changed. I'd just grown accustomed to living in a state of constant crisis, always dealing with matters of life and death. Through that, I had somehow forgotten how to deal with the mundanity of regular life. I remember going for a walk in Central Park on this really beautiful day. Everybody was out enjoying the sunshine, and I just felt like an outsider, because participating in a scene like this had just become an alien concept to me. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I had literally forgotten how to enjoy a walk in the park, because I'd just spent three months living in a universe where there was just no space for anything like that. I almost wondered if this was what it was like to get out of prison, for example, where you are confronted with a reality that just no longer makes the kind of intuitive and natural sense that it once did, and you're forced to actually relearn everything from scratch. Claire and I had so many long and emotional conversations about mortality, and I had prayed with all of my might for her to be okay, and I am not religious in the slightest. Towards the end, I was even trying to work out what her funeral might be like. What was I going to say, and how was I going to handle being there with all of these people who'd failed to support her as she'd stared death in the face? I spent a lot of time grappling with the notion that my sense of integrity my unwillingness to abandon someone who really needed my help had been used as a weapon against me. When your virtues become the rope that is used to hang you with, it's so tough, because your instinct for self-preservation kicks in, and it starts telling you that they're not virtues, they're weaknesses. And I wish I could say that I still wouldn't think twice before going to someone's aid, but unfortunately, at least for now, I'm not sure that's actually true. I still don't trust people the same way that I used to, but I'm glad to say that I have made real progress, and I have hope that maybe someday I'll get there. I've often wondered if I should have seen through the hoax in spite of Claire's absolutely Oscar-worthy performance. There were definitely times when things weren't adding up, and I knew in my gut that something wasn't quite right, but I never even came close to suspecting the full extent of what was actually going on. It just never occurred to me that someone in my life could be capable of such a thing, because it was so far outside of my own frame of reference on what constitutes reasonable behaviour. So I guess the moral of the story, if there is one, is that even if you wouldn't dream of doing something in a million years, be aware that someone else still might, and they could very well be standing right in front of you. That is all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.